0: This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm the co-host, Jack Heald, and I am absolutely thrilled today with uh, this guest you've landed for us, Phil. Uh, Give us a a brief introduction about why Dr. Seafried's here, and um, and we'll just get this conversation going.
2: Sure thing. We are really uh, honored today to be joined by Dr. Thomas Seafried. Uh, Dr. Seafried is a uh, professor uh, in the biology department at Boston College and really has been at the forefront uh, of research for metabolic diseases um, for, you know, almost 40 years now. Uh, so, you know, really excited to hear um, what Dr. Seyfried, uh can share with us. His uh, career and his research has increasingly focused on cancer as a metabolic disease. Um, He has a a definitive uh, textbook on the subject written about 10 years ago on cancer as a metabolic disease. So, uh, welcome, Professor Siegfried. And um, if you wouldn't mind starting uh, just with a little bit more background as to how you got interested in metabolic diseases and kind of where that has uh, led you to today.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's uh it's great to have the opportunity to share with you uh some of my ideas on um cancer metabolism and uh, meta- the metabolic underpinnings for a variety of different uh of different situations. Um well, when I was at at Yale University uh 35 years ago, I guess uh, epilepsy was the prime um, um, area of research in the in the neurology, the clinical department of neurology, and folks said, you know, um, if you want to hang around, I was, you bet, you better do something with epilepsy. So we had been studying uh, gangliosides, uh, glycosphingolipids, in the brains of mice, and uh, I had also recognized that there were a lot of mouse models of epilepsy. So uh, this fit dovetailed uh, wonderfully into the, um, uh, the idea at that time that there might be genes that could control epileptic seizures, and we could use mice as models for this. So we were mapping epilepsy genes. Um, you know, one of the, w- w- we did a number of studies on this, uh, published many, many papers with Gil Glasser, who was the uh, uh, chairman of the neurology department at that time. Um, and uh, I I I did a lot of that and 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 biochemistry of gangliosides related to epilepsy related to brain development, and I took that entire project with me when I took the faculty position at Boston College, in in eighty five, and uh, we built a big program here mapping epilepsy genes and uh, looking at glycolipids and things like this, but um, it turned out that even though you were mapping these epilepsy genes, published papers in Science and wherever. Um, It really, it really, everybody liked bringing everything down to the molecular level, but it wasn't helping anybody in the clinic. Um, And then one of my students said to me, Hey, there, there, there's a big um, interest in ketogenic diets for managing epilepsy. Well, when I was at Yale, I saw that potential. I wrote an internal grant uh, to the medical school to study ketogenic diet and epilepsy and uh, they turned it down. There's nobody's interested in this. You know, this is like, okay. So I, I, not having that much background, I just said, okay, well, they don't they don't care about that. Then one of my students, when I came to BC, they said, oh, uh, Jim Abrams uh, of the Charlie, who found- started the Charlie Foundation, he was a movie producer. He made move- the airplane movies. They were kind of comedies and things. Oh. And Jim's <laughs> son, son, Charlie, uh, had a f- profound epilepsy and found out that they brought him to Johns Hopkins and pretty much uh cured him of he was he was almost dead from epileptic seizures and at johns hopkins um they managed his seizure uh quite well and jim says what the hell's going on here and then they made the movie with his friend meryl streep first do no harm so this this kind of uh kindled a lot of interest uh mainly because of jim's uh notarized celebrity i guess you could say and the next thing you know um he's pushing this like why don't we know more about this uh, ketogenic diet for epilepsy So my student went out there, uh, Mariana Tran, and um, she came back and said, whoa, you know, this, I sent the student out there because I felt that, you know, people aren't going to be interested in keto. Then all of a sudden, uh, Jim Abrams like sparked this whole field uh, and then we got into it. So we had all these epilepsy models here, um, some of the best, uh, uh, and I started putting them on ketogenic diets. Uh, calorie restriction and keto, and all of a sudden the seizures are managed. And it, and it, it was interesting because then, I, I, I'm gonna, I wanna pause. Explain what managed means. Uh, that seizures would go away. Okay. <laughs> okay. I like yeah. that kind of management. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, ma- the management was the animals stopped seizing. Okay. The, the, interesting, the interesting thing is, is that uh, it didn't make any difference uh, what their genetic problem was like, oh, this mouse could have this genetic problem, the other mouse could have another genetic. But when you put them on the ketogenic diet, it seemed like it didn't make any difference. And then the kids wow. in the clinic, in the, in the clinic, <laughs> all these amazing. all these kids have epilepsy for a broad range of reasons. Um, uh, and uh, John Freeman at the time told me who was the, he has since passed away. He was the guru at, uh, at, uh, in the neurology department at, uh, at Johns Hopkins. And he was telling me, he said, Tom, you know, we don't understand how you can take kids that have epilepsy from a bang on the head. A kid gets a viral infection. Some kid has an inherited thing and you put them on this diet and all of a sudden you get management. So, uh, and then I said, what's the mechanism? And they said, well, I don't know. It has something to do with ketones. And so I said, what about glucose? So we, we did ketogenic diets uh, with and without calorie restriction. And we found out if you did calorie restriction in the mouse is like water only fasting. Well, Wilder in 1921, who developed the ketogenic diet at Mayo Clinic, said that, whoa, if you take epileptic patients, any of them, and put them on a fasting water only diet, the seizures would go away. So what the hell was that? So then Wilder said, when you starve people, blood sugar goes down and the body starts mobilizing fats for these water soluble ketone bodies. So he thought that it had something to do with elevation of ketone bodies. So, uh, uh, and that's where it was kind of in the 1920s. And then all of a sudden these epilepsy drugs came on the market and ketogenic diet went out the window. So nobody was really talking about it. And in the 1970s, when I was at Yale, I kind of like, I looked into this and I said, it's kind of interesting. Ah, nobody's interested in that stuff anymore. So, So Jim Abrams, the movie guy, with his son Charlie, rekindle this whole ketogenic thing, and there was only one little group at Johns Hopkins that was putzing around, and that little group saved saved Charlie's life. They made the movie first do no harm, and all of a sudden everything exploded, in the epilepsy field. In the epilepsy field, so um, you know we were doing all this cancer stuff because I was looking at gangliosides in brain cancer, um, a lot of cancers, and gangliosides are glycosphingolipids and. We have a strong dynamic reputation in glycosphingolipid biochemistry. That's where I got my PhD at the University of Illinois in glycolipid biochemistry. So um, you know, we're looking glycolipid, at glycolipid, gangli- that's sugar fat? I'm yes. F- yes. So gangliosides are famous mainly for Tay Sachs disease. Okay, there's a disease that is effectively mostly Jewish folks, um, is Ashkenazi Jewish population. The, the disease was recognized in the 1800s, and it affects um, uh, mostly Ashkenazi Jews, and uh, it causes an accumulation of these gangliosides in the brain, uh, leading to profound mental deterioration and, and death. But we also were looking at these same molecules for asking, what the hell do they do? They're loaded in your brain and we're trying to figure out what they do. So my research was focused on that. But in looking at cancer with gangliosides, we found all kinds of abnormalities in gangliosides and brain cancer. You have to realize a research project is not a straight a route. There's branches, things excite you for a few years, you're losing interest, you can, but there's a, there's a continuum of branching off like a main, a main route. So we were looking at gangliosides in the brains of epileptic patients as well. Uh, epileptic mice, we were looking at, for, at, them, at them for a, a lot of reasons to figure out uh, what, they, what they might do. But, um, and we were looking at them in epilepsy. And then the next thing, you know, uh, sh- my student comes back and says, hey, what, what about this ketogenic diet? It's unbelievable. So I said, let's put them on the, the mice that we had on ketogenic diets. But we did a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet and um, calorie restriction. We've And then I published this big paper uh, saying that uh, I think the effect of ketogenic diet works by lowering blood sugar and elevating ketones at the same time. So I thought it was the dual purpose of lowering glucose because why? John Freeman at, Yale, at, at Johns Hopkins told me, he said, Tom, we can have kids managed for weeks and weeks with epi- managing their seizures on a ketogenic diet, no breakthroughs. Beautiful management. These were kids that would have two or three t- seizures a day. And now they haven't had any for months. And all they do is take one little taste of the, of the sugar, uh, uh, orange juice or a Coke or a bite of a cake. And within minutes, they're exploding back into an epileptic seizure. Wow. So so oh. I said, whoa. So and, and glucose is spiked. It, glucose becomes spiked. And even there was some child uh, on the Connecticut shoreline who was managed for almost a year and the parents called uh, John Freeman up in a, in a panic. Uh, Joey just had a massive epileptic seizure. Uh, from what? So we, we looked into it. John did it. turned out that, the, that he was in the sun and they took suntan lotion that had a, a glucose base to it. And oh the glucose God. went through the skin and blew a big seizure on this guy, this little kid who had been managed for week months. So we realized then glucose can completely inactivate a ketogenic diet real quick. Wow. so uh even I, though I, they're messed i'm I'm staggered yeah, no, I, we were all staggered, so uh we didn't realize how fast you could fall out of the management by just up- elevating glucose just a little bit. Wow. so uh, the question was it elevated ketones, was it the reduced glucose, or was it some combination of these? And to this day, the field of epilepsy and many of my colleagues are still struggling to find the mechanism by which a ketogenic diet or low glucose or fa- therapeutic fasting or all these kinds of things can, can manage seizures. Uh, the cancer issue becomes far more clear and understandable than the epilepsy thing. So, uh, you know, so when, when my student came back and told me about this, yeah, we started showing. And then, and then Freeman told me, he said, you know, every now and then you get a kid who likes the fat, you know, you have to take the ketogenic diet. It was like all kinds of uh, triglyceride oils, and you know, uh, all this kind of stuff. And most kids hate it; they're crying, and screaming. And, you know, the parents sometimes have to put a food tube in because the kid doesn't want to eat the stuff. And but his seizures are nicely managed. And then Freeman told me he said, um, he says, Tom, one out of a thousand kids for some reason loves to eat the oil, and take as much of it in his in his body as he can. And he said those kids never have seizure management. He says if you like the diet you don't get managed from it it's the kids who don't want to eat it's like a calorie restriction so it's the calorie restriction you don't eat much when somebody's giving you a lot of fat so you don't eat much all of a sudden your seizures are managed and these kids that love to eat all the fat had high uh, they would get seizures and what we found is we gave the mice all the fat they wanted and we couldn't we couldn't stop their seizures nor could we stop their cancer so it turns out when you eat too much fat, you get insulin insensitivity and you maintain high blood sugar levels. I mean, the body responds to all these different things. You just got to know, um, this is, I'm telling you in a, in a nutshell, decades and decades of research that we have done published papers and looked into all this stuff. Um, so I know you okay, might be,
0: I, I'm we am bewildered as well. I got to, I got to, I want to drill down into something that I didn't understand that you just said. If you get, too much fat? Yeah. You get into a state of insulin insensitivity? That's right. The blood, the blood. That's completely it, contrary to my understanding of how that mechanism works.
1: Well, you're overwhelming the, the body. It. Yeah, you're overwhelming the body with so much energy and fat. In other words, your uh, fasting and ketogenic diets sh- should always be uh, in a restricted state. So uh, we 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 naturally get into we naturally get into ketosis by not eating. So water only fasting, and that's why Wilder built the ketogenic diet in the first place because people could only do water only fasting for a short period of time before you'd go into starvation, which is a pathological condition. So uh, therapeutic fasting or fasting is healthy. Starvation is pathological. So Wilder said, "Is there a way we can keep the be- benefits?" of fasting longer and he said why don't we get a diet that has all fats and very little carbohydrates and minimal protein and then we can keep the can- the epileptic patient in a stable condition for a longer period of time but if you eat too much fat you get too much energy and then the it, then you can't push the blood sugar into the tissues insulin becomes elevated and you get this insulin insensitivity so the keto- the ketogenic diet is to represent Therapeutic fasting, not overeating massive amounts of fat. So, uh, so it's a so people say, "Oh, wow,
0: this I- is this is this is deep stuff. This is really good." <laughs> oh yeah, I, is- I, I, I just I want to repeat it so that it sinks in. Um, what you don't know, and, and this is part of the reason I'm I'm so excited. Uh, I've had four epileptic seizures out of nowhere in the last three months. So this this has very. Um, Uh, pertinent it's very pertinent to me so an excess of fat um when you're when you go into ketosis your body's burning fat for energy um however an excess is providing so much energy that the cells which would the, the the mechanism by which we would ordinarily absorb Insulin, where we make use of insulin in our cells um, to get sugar from the blood into the cells becomes desensitized. And as a result of that, even though we're not ingesting too much sugar, mm. because of this triggered response of an excess of energy from, from ketones, our blood sugar goes up.
1: Am I getting that right? Yeah well here's the situation the the, ketogen- the you're you're having a lot of uh, medium chain tri- triglycerides uh, okay well that's a glycerol backbone so two glycerol oh. mo- molecules can be conjugated into a single glucose molecule so so what you have is an over overabund- went on yeah, the overabundance of 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 glycerol backbones and the process of glu- gluconeogenesis that is pumping out a lot of glucose from the liver at the same time, you're saturating your body full of fat, and that creates... So when you look at the blood work of a, of a, of a mouse pounding down massive amounts of fat, you'd say, this mouse should have cardiovascular disease. This mouse should be the un- most unhealthy thing on the planet. And that's what you see. If you look at a blood profile in a mouse that's eating ketogenic diet uh, uninhibited, and he likes it like the kid that would not get benefit from epilepsy their blood work looks like crap it's terrible so you have to now here's the situation you got to be very careful you have to know the difference between different species the human being <laughs> uh, the basal metabolic rate how we how we burn calories over a period of time in a state of rest is 7 times slower than that of a mouse or a mouse is 7 times faster than that of a human we have an internal regulatory system about eating fat. Uh, If we eat a little too much fat, we send a signal uh, that the hormone cholecystokinin is triggered, which impacts the 10th cranial nerve, which shuts down the appetite center. So when you eat a little too much fat, humans say, I haven't enough. I've had enough. I don't want any more. The mouse, the cholecystokinin in the mouse doesn't work as well as it does in human. So the mouse could possibly eat, because they're eating 20% of their body weight a day. So you have to be careful. A 40% calorie restriction in the mouse is the same as a human water-only fasting. So 24 hours of a 40% calorie restriction in a mouse is like one week of water-only fasting in a human. So we have to balance what we see in the mouse with what we see in the human. And then we mesh the physiological changes together to come up to a better understanding of how humans are going to respond to these diet ma- manipulations that we do in the mouse, so you really have to have a, a, a greater understanding of both um, mouse physiology and human physiology, so that you can blend, you, you can make uh, predictions from preclinical studies into the human based on knowing the differences in basal metabolic rate. Now, okay. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about this from George Cahill, and and Richard Veech. These are uh, are giants in the field of energy metabolism. Uh, 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 Veach was uh, uh, Hans Krebs's last graduate student of the Krebs cycle, the TCA cycle. Uh, Veach himself was a member of the National Academy. He was a big a giant in the field of un- understanding. So he was a good friend of mine. He passed away two years ago. And then George Cahill, the, the guy who studied starvation in man, was the leading expert in the world on human starvation. So both of these guys, uh, uh, were friends who would come to my office and I would visit them and we would talk for hours about human physiology, ketogenic diets, fasting, starvation, and all this kind of stuff. So I had the, I had the the luxury of discussing my ideas and learning from two giants in the field who themselves have created the field. So, um, And I was always, so I always go to the experts, the guys who, and eventually then you become the expert only because the knowledge transfer from one expert to the other, and then you absorb what they know. And then you, and then you move the field forward yourself. So uh, my platform uh, was based on the knowledge base of giants in the field of energy metabolism, brain, brain, (laughs) you know, all this kind of stuff. So, uh, um, so, so, uh, so that, you know, we started to think what's the difference between man and mouse for, for this, um, epilepsy managing seizures. Well, a lot of my good close friends are all in the epilepsy field. You know, the Charlie foundation exploded now as a, as a source of managing epilepsy with metabolic approaches. So, so, um, and then I moved once I, I moved my research to the say, well, if calorie restriction works so good on, on epilepsy, what does it do to cancer? And, and um, uh, Peyton Rouse, can you believe this? He got the Nobel Prize back uh, for his work on calorie restriction in mice with cancer. He showed that uh, calorie restriction reduced angiogenesis, inflammation, all kinds of stuff. And I, I said, whoa, so how, what's the mechanism of action of, of how calorie restriction and ketogenic diets would manage cancer? Uh, like what, what's going on now? So I deviated. I turned the turned the direction of the program away from from epilepsy uh, to uh, to the cancer problem. So uh, um, Linda Nebling, uh, a, a nursing student uh, at Case Western Reserve, published a paper in 1995. She took uh, three little kids with uh, inoperable brain cancer or brain cancer that was operated on that didn't get it all out. And these kids were brutalized radiation and chemo. And, Hmm. and she put them on a ketogenic diet and both, both of the kids that she published, uh, uh, one of them was so brain damaged, uh, that they had to have special education. The other person got, got well, and they all thought that these little kids were going to be dead. They gave her, they gave her to her because they were considered hopeless cases. And she rescued both kids, um, with the ketogenic diet. And in that article, she said, uh, Otto Warburg years ago said that uh, these tumor cells need a lot of glucose, so one of the ways you can manage cancer, you should be able to reduce the fuel that's driving the cancer and you know I've always heard of Warburg everybody does in off conversations and things like this, and then I said what the, who's this guy war I mean what did he really really do and this was like around nineteen ninety nine maybe two thousand I started to look into into what the hell Warburg was all about. And then I started looking in more and more, and we were seeing really good results on calorie restriction and restricted ketogenic diets for tumors. And I was looking at gangliosides and all this kind of stuff. And then I said, what the hell, man? So I started looking deeply into what Warburg did, read all of his papers, had the German papers translated into English. And then I said, Warburg was the 30s. Is that right? He, He started in the 20s. Okay. Uh, on this, uh, he, and he uh, he received the Nobel Prize in 1931 for his discovery of cytochrome c, the 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 key enzyme necessary for oxidative phosphorylation, generating energy through oxfos. He never received the Nobel Prize for his work on cancer. Uh, he had been nominated, uh, but the Hitler uh, during the war years uh, said no German could receive a Nobel Prize. Sam Apple did a nice book. Uh, Recently, called ravenous on the history of Otto Warburg. Um, So anyway, I you know I'm I'm looking at the 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 I'm you know I'm switching from epilepsy to cancer biochemistry, uh, back and forth and back and forth. A lot of students coming through. We developed the best animal models, preclinical models for cancer. We defined what the nature of the metastatic cell was. Uh, We know what how metastasis works. Uh, Now we know. Uh, what what drives real, real quickly real quickly um,
0: describe that the, the the how how metastasis actually works well remember you're talking to a layman here
1: yeah 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 well you know and and, and, I, and I'm I apologize for flipping from one concept to another oh, uh, without with without you so it, because you know we, we I offer uh, whole semester classes on <laughs> on, on these kinds of things and you know we're here on a short discussion And, uh, you you know, I, 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 and I appreciate you stopping. Uh, what we found is that the metastatic cancer cell shares, uh, characteristics with an immune cell in our body called the macrophage. It's part of the immune system, right? Uh, they're called macrophage means big eater. Um, and macrophages are designed to protect our body and to facilitate wound healing. So if we get a, a, a cut or a lesion. Uh, these monocytes, immature macrophages come out of the bloodstream, harm, uh, home right into the, the damage. They kill bacteria uh, and they help heal the wound together with the fibroblasts in the microenvironment, make a scar, clean up the mess, and then they move back into local lymph, lymph nodes and hang out until until the body is sure that this uh, damage is is healed. So they have a natural ability to enter and exit tissues. They exist in the bloodstream, and when something goes wrong in a particular tissue, the the monocytes will come out of the bloodstream, uh, go right through the tissue, and work together with another group of mac that call resident macrophages. And and every organ in our body has these resident, they're like the the local police department. And uh, if there's a local tiny, like some cell up and dies, this thing we'll hear will take his, the cart, cart away as his, his carcass, and a little kind of a insult. We have the local police department, which are resident macrophages in all tissues to handle a problem. And if the problem gets out of hand, then the, the militia that are in your bloodstream, the monocytes, come in to help the local guys clean up the mess. So these macrophages are come from the blood, the bone marrow and they go into the bloodstream, and then they recycle the ones that the police department retires periodically, and they replace new policemen with old, you know, get the old guys. So you have liver macrophages called Kupffer cells, you get alveolar max in the liver, in the, in the lung, and you got microglia in the brain. These are all the local guys. So what we discovered was that all the metastatic cancers that humans have, breast cancer, colon cancer, They all have these characteristics of macrophages. So uh, if you look at a brain cancer, a a colon cancer, a breast cancer, and you look at the cells, they're all like card-carrying macrophages. So I said, what the hell is going on with this? And they're the only cell in the body that's genetically programmed to enter and exit tissues. So what you do is you get a, a, a metabolic corruption of the mitochondria in one of these macrophages, and it becomes the neoplastic cancer cell. So uh, um, uh, now you have other cancer cells that grow like crazy, but they can't spread. So these are called stem cell cancers. So a lot of people study, they, they grow rapidly, uh, but they can't leave the local area. They they're, they don't have the genetic apparatus to exit and enter the bloodstream. However, when you have a tumor, it may it's composed of all these different kinds of cells. It's just not stem cell proliferation. It's these uh, metastatic macrophage proliferation. So, you know, people say, oh, cancer cells," they in- inhibit the immune system. Well, they are the damn immune system. Wake wow. up people. So, uh, um, and a lot of people don't want to accept that because they're locked into thinking about other things. So we have clearly defined what the origin of, of metastatic cancer is. So, okay. I, I want to make sure I understand
0: what you're saying is that a cancer, a a macrophage gone bad. Yeah. Is what a cancer is.
1: Yeah. We call them rogue macrophages. A rogue macrophage.
2: Yeah. Rogue macrophages. Hijacking the immune system to kind of work against us, you know, and this, this kind of leads into an interesting fundamental, you know, uh, discussion around, you know, many illnesses. I mean, heart disease, cancer, Um, you know, all of these common illnesses that we're we're fighting against, these chronic illnesses, and whether they are, you know, at their root metabolic problems, um, which, you know, would then lead one to believe that metabolic therapies and uh, changing the way we eat uh, would be a powerful tool against them versus, you know, I would say the more maybe modern concept that these are more structural problems that can be treated with surgery, or that these are, um, you know, uh basically uh deficiencies uh, you know, uh that can be attacked with medications, um, as opposed to these at their root cause just being metabolic diseases. And yeah. I think, you know, you, you've certainly shown that very well, you know, in animal models. And of course, there's always, as you said, the the conversation about how do we, you know, how well does that translate to us as humans, um, and how can we translate that into clinical practice ultimately?
1: Well, we're doing that um, because our we have two arms on our program. Uh, one is the preclinical arm, uh, which which um, troubleshoots uh, a lot of the things that and uh, that we think will work. And then we have the clinicians that are are, are applying that in clinics or in small uh, groups of people. Humans will do a hell of a lot better on uh, these metabolic therapies than the mouse because the basal metabolic rate is less, slower. So we have a, a much greater uh, a time to have all of this work. And the mouse, everything is like uh, uh, supercharged, accelerated. So, uh, but humans, we can we can uh, adjust uh, things. And we can ask the uh, person, how are you feeling? You know, we can't do that to the mouse. Uh, we can know whether he's looking sick or not, but we, we can't get a, a verbal feedback, but in humans, we can, and we can adjust the therapies. Uh, like, uh, we do that in the mouse, but we, we don't get the verbal feedback. Um, we can only say the guy looks like he's healthy. Uh, but with the person we can do a lot more and it works. I, I'll get into that because, because the the movement to uh, manage cancer uh, will be a metabolic one. Um, there's a lot of firewalls that are preventing us from moving in that direction. But, but my first step is to solidify the scientific basis for why metabolic therapy should become the standard of care for managing cancer. But in order to, to do that, you have to be on a bedrock of scientific evidence because if the science tells us that this is the way to go and you're not going in that direction, then there's something else going, going on here. Sure. So you need to know that the, the platform upon which our approach for managing cancer uh, is based on hard science and evidence is accumulating uh, to show why metabolic therapy for managing cancer will become the standard of care. It's just a matter of time. So we're focusing primarily on brain cancer because the, the situation for that type of cancer is completely abysmal. There has been no major advance in 100 years. So in my latest paper, like we have glioblastomic, it killed uh, Ted Kennedy, it killed John McCain, it killed uh, President Biden's son, Bo, and it killed a lot of other people. And these people are all dying uh, within uh, 15 months to two years. And when you go back and look at the literature, in 1926, survival for glioblastoma was 8 to 14 months. In 2022, it's 8 to 16 months. So in 100 years, I mean, we've got the Webb Telescope. Uh, we've got all kinds of things that have happened in technology in a hundred years, and we haven't made a single advance in glioblastoma. And I said, "What the hell is going on with that? You know, this is an embar- This should be an embarrassment. We 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 have people that are willing to take their lives. They go to Oregon and they die with dignity rather than going through the therapy for glioblastoma." I mean, uh, uh, Brittany Maynard did this. She has a big article in People Magazine about her decision to die rather than go through the standard of care. I mean, this, is a, this, is a, uh, this shouldn't happen in 2022. So I wrote a paper, uh, several papers. Why is this the case? Why have we made no major advances? And when you look at the survival curve for all the patients with glioblastoma, it's like you, you cannot design experiments more consistent and reproducible than how fast GBM patients die after being diagnosed. And Mm -hmm. the issue is the issue is it's the, it's the treatment itself that's killing the patients. Um, The treatment itself. Can you believe this? It's the radiation and the chemo. Yes. I can believe it. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I have shown the scientific evidence to support it. (laughs) I've shown how radiating the human brain frees up massive amounts of the two fuels that drive the fermentation metabolism of the brain cancer cells. The cancer cells can't live uh, without fermentation, which is energy without oxygen. All of us are breathing. We get our energy from the oxygen that we breathe. (laughs) Cancer cells don't use oxygen. They ferment. So, And again, they're macrophages, the, the, the really invasive ones. And what do they eat? So all you have to say is, what do the cancer cells eat that keeps them alive? Because without energy, nothing can grow. And people say, how do you know? Take cyanide, see how fast you die, right? Cyanide, you're dead instantly. Why? You stopped all energy metabolism in the body, and you die. Cancer cells live in cyanide, so clearly they don't—they're they, not respiring. So, so Warburg showed that years ago. I mean, you could pour cyanide on a tumor, and it didn't kill the tumor. Kills the kills the host, but not the tumor. So uh, cancer cells don't uh-huh. need oxygen. So they ferment. So what do you ferment? You ferment glucose and glutamine. Those are the only two major fuels. And we have evidence, we published evidence on this. Okay, so if they need glucose and glutamine, how do you stop them? You stop them by taking away glucose and glutamine and transitioning them over to ketone bodies. They can't burn ketone bodies because you need good oxygen metabolism to burn ketone body. So what do we do to the cancer patient? We irradiate them. Okay, so when you irradiate somebody's brain, you free up massive amounts of glutamine in the microenvironment, and because your brain swells from the radiation, you give high dose steroids, and steroids raise the blood sugar level in your blood, like almost like a diabetic level. So the glucose is pouring in from the bloodstream. The radiation causes blood sugar to go up anyway, and then you then you're freeing up all this glutamine in the brain, and then they wonder why everybody's dead. I mean, it's so clear. And then when we took one guy, uh, Pablo Kelly, who has a podcast, and said, uh, "Pablo." Said, I don't want any of that crap. He said, I I'll just as soon take life into my own hands. So we put him on metabolic therapy. He's out. He's out eight years with a. <laughs> he was considered terminal, and everybody says, Oh, he's a fluke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's a fluke, right? Well, how many other flukes would you like to have? Because we have them coming down the pike, one one after another. You know. As I said, if you if you if you threw uh, 100 guys, uh, 99 guys out of an airplane with no parachute, you put a parachute on one guy and you say, oh, he's a fluke. You know, he's not a fluke. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you don't want to uh, use that. You don't want to use that now. <laughs> far too common approach in uh, medicine yeah. these days, I find. <laughs> Yeah, you, know? um, you know, one of the other interesting things that uh, I think I've learned from you is that um, you know, in, in cancer treatment, we're increasingly focused on uh mutations. And, you know, we have uh all these uh drugs coming out that are targeting, you know, yeah. specific mutations of certain lines of cancer cells. And I know one of the things that you have uh, you know, theorized and 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 proven in a lot of ways, is that these mutations are the downstream effect of the altered metabolism. Yeah,
1: yeah they are. So, and how do we know that? Because uh, the cancer cells produce tremendous amounts of reactive oxygen species, ROS. These are uh, 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 radicals. They damage, they damage DNA, uh, uh, RNA, proteins, lipids, and this kind of stuff. Well, they pour out of these cancer cells. And they cause the mutations. uh, They're carcinogenic and mutagenic. So the damaged cell respiration, in time, it happens, it's a protracted event. So the cell tries to stay alive by respiring. And that is the respiration capacity becomes lower and lower with the compensation from fermentation, because with that, you got to have energy. So where's the energy coming from? In our bodies, it comes from oxidative phosphorylation. We breathe air. We breathe air. We exhale CO2. The oxygen in the air is giving us the energy to produce ATP. Uh, The cancer cell is getting, it gradually loses the ability to generate energy from oxygen and acquires the ability to generate energy from fermentation, which is energy without oxygen. And uh, I I just,
0: I want to, I want to underline that, make sure I I got this. A cancer cell, which is, we've already determined is a rogue macrophage.
1: Well, that's the metastatic, the metastatic one. You have a lot of oh, okay. stem cell cancer cells that that grow like crazy, but they can't metastasize. So okay. you, they'll kill you by mass effects, uh, but they don't spread. But in the real world, you have both kinds of cells.
0: Okay, and 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 the commonality of these two types yeah. is they have lost the capacity to utilize oxygen for energy production, and as an adaptive response. Yes they instead move to fermentation
1: yes 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 and then they have to say well what are they fermenting so we went through all of the fuels that a cancer cell can ferment it's only two the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamine nothing else so now that tells us the strategy for killing these things um and we went and I, I just the- want to i want to make sure
0: that that i'm not mistaken here. This is common for all types of cancers.
1: Yes. <laughs> why? And I can tell you why, because the mitochondria are defective in all types of cancers. All cancers can live without oxygen. Why? Because the mitochondria that's responsible for generating energy with oxygen is defective in all cancers. Not So we go after brain cancer only because they have nothing there's nothing to say that, oh, we have something better. No, you don't, you don't have anything. So all we do is show that we can take GBM patients and keep them alive far longer than what would have been expected. And people say, do you think that will work in other cancers? Of course it will. I mean, we have brain, breast cancer, we have colon cancer, we have all these cancers that all do the same thing. They all ferment. Now this is, the, this is why it's so dangerous. It's dangerous because it's a very simple approach that can manage all major cancers, Uh, regardless of their genetic mutations, which are largely irrelevant, uh, they're all downstream stuff. So all this precision medicine, uh, all these things you hear, it's all bullshit to be, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, and is it, is it working? No, we have 1600 people a day dying from cancer in the United States every day. And it's getting worse year in and year out. And then you say, how many of these poor people are dying from the treatments? And a lot of them are dying from the, from the treatments. So, so you're saying is you're treating cancer, with with therapies that are not based on the solid science that underlies why the cancer is dysregulated in growth in the first place, so so uh, and, and the, you know who understands this? The common guy, the layperson, can understand this far better than the oncologist working at the top medical schools. I mean, it's just, it's a mind blower. I mean, you can't you can't write a script like this, right? <laughs> and then when the, and then when the common guy goes into Dana Farber, MD Anderson, he says, "I want metabolic therapy," oh, that doesn't work. And besides, it, we don't know about it. I, well, for crying out loud, how are you working on a disease when you have no clue as to the biological basis for the disease that you're working on? Uh, Sixteen hundred people a day dead from cancer. So uh, when you when you start to put it, it's a tragedy. Once we realize. Once people understand what I'm saying and act upon it and we develop it, like Dr. Claffy and all these other guys that are going to be out there, we're writing up huge protocols now, uh, instruction manual, basically how to treat cancer patients with metabolic therapy. And once you start seeing everybody like Pablo Kelly coming out and saying, Hey, I should have been dead. I'm getting a family here. What's going on? I didn't lose my hair. I didn't have any bleeding gums. I mean, whoa! everybody say, I want that. Can I have that? Let me have that. You know, why you want to go in and get your brain irradiated? This is nuts. I mean, nobody should ever have their brain irradiated. This is nuts. You don't do that to another human being. So, uh, uh, you know, and that's because of the lack of knowledge. So these guys lack knowledge. They're clueless as to the underlying mechanisms that drive in the the cancer. And they're they're using therapies that actually make it worse. And the evidence is all in the literature perfectly death, everybody's dying at the, approximately the same time. Rarely do you get any survivors. What the hell? For 45 years, we're doing this? 100 years and no progress? And you continue to do the same stupid thing that you've been doing over and over again? And you're resistant to something new? You tell me, the, Tom and Guy, you tell me what's wrong with this picture.
0: <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you now to stop talking to me Yeah. and speak directly to this audience of of people who are, are just interested in getting and staying healthy. Yeah. Well, speak directly to them about what they should do, what actions they should take based on your research, what you have proven okay. so
1: in we the lab. Have, yeah, we have come to realize that uh, glioblastoma and all major cancers for that matter are the result of a chronic disruption of energy through the mitochondria. So the focal point of cancer and health, by the way, is mitochondrial function, the function of the little organelle in our cells that regulate the cell cycle, that regulate the energy metabolism. If you can keep your mitochondria healthy, if you can keep your mitochondria healthy, you should be able to avoid cardiovascular disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, all of the different kinds of Alzheimer's disease 40% of Alzheimer's disease is diet and lifestyle issues the if you can if you can keep your mitochondria healthy you have the possibility of significantly reducing the risk for cancer diabetes cardiovascular you name it this is why it is very very dangerous about what i'm saying because this this <laughs> doesn't take as as philip said You don't have to treat with drugs. If you know how to keep your mitochondria healthy, you can avoid most of the stuff that they're pouring on us. The problem is the diet and lifestyle that we have puts us in a, in a, in a, in a, in the path to having all these diseases. I mean, we lack exercise. I mean, we don't even have to get out of the. We don't even have to unask the car to go in and get a hamburger. They hand it through the window so you can drive up and you get a donut or a hamburger. You don't have to leave the car. I mean, like, I mean we're, we have become so sedentary. Uh, we, have, we have become so filled with foods uh, that are poorly nutritious and high in glycemic index, damaging mitochondria and putting us at risk for all of these different, uh, what we call chronic diseases of Western civilization. So people say, well, what am I going to do? Go back and live like a caveman? Um, you know, the caveman didn't have hamburgers and fraps and donut jelly filled donuts and all this kind of stuff, uh, but they also didn't have cancer. <laughs> they never, uh, Albert Schweitzer, the great uh physician humanitarian, was remar- remarked about these African tribes have not having cancer. Um, they, you know, they have, they have infections and other things, but they didn't have cancer. Same with the Inuits, the Eskimos, they didn't have cancer. Many of the Aboriginal peoples never had cancer. Cancer was like, there wasn't even a word in the vocabulary. Now it's like, uh, overtaking heart in, in China today, cancer has replaced heart disease as the number one killer of their population. And, and what, what is responsible for this? It's the diet and lifestyle. So I, I think I'm not going to tell people, you know, don't eat jelly donuts and pizzas I, I just, I, I just would say, no, that uh, it's okay. But every now and then you might want to do something that will give your mitochondria, uh, a, a, give, give, give your mitochondria a break, give your digestive system a break. What do you do? You know, skip a couple of meals every now and then, you know, do more exercise uh, 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 that'll reduce the risk significantly. But when you're told that cancer is a genetic disease or you have a gene that's all bullshit uh, it, it, because there's no there's no gene that we know of that's 100% penetrant so gene is a risk factor for sure some people inherit like brca1 what does brca1 do it damages mitochondria but of only 50% of the women that have brca1 really get breast cancer what about all the ones that have the brca1 that don't get breast cancer you know or leif or or all of these other inherited risk factor. People, oh, it must be genetic. No, it's not. The gene is just simply a, res- a risk factor, as is a chemical carcinogen, as intermittent hypoxia, as oncogenic viruses. They all attack mitochondria, putting you at risk for uh, replacing oxfos uh, respiration with fermentation. And if you can keep your brain cells healthy in an Alzheimer's disease, you can prevent neuronal death. So uh, again, you keep, now there are some genes that will give you Alzheimer's disease, which you can't do anything about. But there's only about 5% of these people. The vast majority of people are getting Alzheimer's disease from the same kinds of things that will give them cancer and uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and all this other stuff. Obesity has now moved ahead of smoking as the number one risk factor for cancer. (laughs) Jesus. So you stop smoking, get fat, and get cancer. So cancer is still there. You just got it before from smoking. Now you get it from too much fat. (laughs) Now you have less fun as you get there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you can't believe, it. I mean, when you understand the physiology and biochemistry of what's going on, it's just astonishing. And then you try to tell the medical establishment, this is what's happening. And this ah, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So, uh, so, so talk to the, the person who's
0: sitting here, listening and, and they're brand new to, to this whole idea and they've been diagnosed with some sort of cancer or their mother, or their friend, or a family member, talk to them.
1: Yeah. So, uh, in fact, I, I wrote it down. The tr- The great tragedy is that they hear what I say. They read my papers. They go on, they hear the YouTube videos. And then they go to their oncologist. And the guy says, I never heard of this. I never heard of Otto Warburg. Uh, it must. Uh, if it I've were, heard of Otto Warburg. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of them haven't. So uh, and glu- and the other thing we, all- yeah, yeah. we the other thing we have we hear all the time at top medical schools, uh, glucose has nothing to do with cancer. <laughs> I mean Isn't that kids- amazing
2: when we when we use glucose to to diagnose cancer, you know, it's the foundation of the of the you know test yeah. we use to diagnose cancer, the PET scan, it's yeah. all based on glucose metabolism, and yet we turn around and say, well, glucose has nothing to do with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can't figure it out. And then the guys that are getting radiated, they, they're told to take in as much sugar as you possibly can because you won't oh lose weight. God. Uh, 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 and I'm saying, wow, t- t- cancer cells are fat and happy. They're loving the, they're loving the standard of care. You know, uh, what do you do? You, 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 you burn out somebody, you you give them all this poison, and then you pour glucose on top of it. I mean, it's like nuts. Um, and I don't know what to do because the cancer patients call me up and they say, my physician threw me out of the office. I said, I wanted, I wanted metabolic therapy. And the guy got so angry, he said, go somewhere else. So, uh, uh, we have a plan. We have it based on hard science, but we, and I don't want to blame. There's so many physicians that are so good people. They want to know about it, but they've never had the training in medical school to know about this. Um, they're procedural. They're studied on procedures and 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 things written in the book. You do this way. You do that way. They're not known. They're not trained to know how to use food as medicine, or understand uh, the metabolic origins of the very disease they're 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 working with. So so there has to be a, a complete retraining or or reeducation of the practitioners to know how to apply this to their patients. Why should a cancer patient come in and tell the physician, I want metabolic therapy, and the physician says, I never heard of it, or it doesn't work. I mean, this is nuts. I'm gonna give you radiation and poisonous chemicals. No, 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 this has to change. And how long it takes to change, I don't know. So the, qu- the answer uh, uh, to your question, Jack, is that is that it's a tragedy. Uh, all these people get fired up and they want to do metabolic therapy. And then when they go to get, they need a practitioner. So that's why uh, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Claffey and others, they want the knowledge. Uh, and it's not only that, Matthew uh, uh, Phillips from New Zealand, and we have the, the, the group from uh, Turkey and we have another group. All these guys are learning real fast on how to do metabolic therapy. And we're writing up a, pr- a treatment protocol as we speak so that it will be a roadmap and a guide so uh, clinicians can adapt. But then the other, on the other hand, if you do something that's not sanctioned by the standard of care, they could risk losing their license. Right. So it's the system itself yeah. that's yes. holding this back. Okay, the system itself is not flexible. And standards of care, as I said over and over again, should have never been written in granite. They should be modified when something new comes along. And one of the things that really baffles me is we have scientific evidence, surviving patients, uh, we have all this. And yet there's such a resistance on the part of the establishment to embrace it. If I had a, if I developed a drug in my lab that can do what metabolic therapy can do, uh, oh, that you'd say you cured cancer, you this is the this is the best thing in the world. They oh, they would be just running over each other to get this drug. But it can happen, but it's not happening from a drug. It's, it's happening from an entire physiological uh, change. And the, the body is a healing machine. The body can heal itself if you give it the opportunity. Don't stand in the way of the body's ability to heal. We target cancer cells by taking away the fuel needed for their existence. And we allow the normal cells of the body to heal this this situation. Give the, give the body the opportunity. Metabolic therapy does that. Radiation and chemo does not do that. You know, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't that think works.
0: that's very ambiguous. That that <laughs>
1: sounds pretty straightforward. I think I understand that. Yeah. I think most people who are not locked into the system understand it. The system is preventing us from moving forward. So I don't know. How are I'm we trying to
0: I'm I'm trying to find find the quote, and I can't remember who it was who said it, but the gist of it was, it's hard to get a man to understand something when his paycheck depend, his pay, yeah. paycheck requires him to not understand it.
1: That was Sinclair Lewis. Sinclair Lewis, yeah. ding, yes. ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah, Who yeah. said that. And that's the truth. Because uh, I had somebody tell me one time that if we did this, we'd have to close half the hospitals in the country. And I said, why? He said, well, radiation revenue brings in the most revenue for all these other things that don't make as much money. And if we stop irradiating people, we're going to have to close the hospital. I said, what about the patients? <laughs> the patient doesn't have any say in this. So um, it's that kind of thing. So, but that's okay if, metabolic, if some entrepreneur can figure out a business model for metabolic therapy. I don't really care. My care is how do we save the lives of all these patients that are dying needlessly, suffering immensely from a system that's inflexible, in, in, uh, adapting another approach to management. And I find that most cancer patients would like this because for the first time they're asked to participate in their own healing process and they, we have to have, and then we have fights between it's, it's tragic. I can tell you, I get, I mean, the patient wants it. The other members of the family say, oh no, he's nuts. The oncologist says, no, no. So we have no cohesion between the advice of the oncologist. And then we have contradictions within the family. Oh no, go, go to him. They, they have a good reputation. For what? Look at, why don't you look and see how many of the survivors. And then if we have all these cancer survivors, people say, Oh, we have, we have millions of cancer survivors. And that's true. But every, almost every one of those people has paid a significant price for that survival. They have hormonal imbalances, digestive imbalance, neuropsychiatric problems. They didn't get out of that scot-free. They, they are, but metabolic therapy, you emerge from the treatment healthier than you were. And besides, you get rid of your diabetes, just like you get rid of your high blood pressure, your hypertension. Oh, by the way, your cancer is gone as well. Oh, this is terrible. This is like the this is dangerous. You mean you're getting rid of all these, getting rid of all these chronic diseases along with your cancer? I mean, you can't have that.
0: <laughs> this is just fascinating. We had Chris Palmer on a couple of months ago. Are you familiar with Chris's work? I heard him. I don't Um know. he's a he's a psychiatrist. Um, doing research he's in uh runs he's the psychiatric right, right department. across
2: town from you actually Harvard. he's in Boston yeah. yeah
0: and and he he states flat out all brain dysfunction is metabolic dysfunction
1: yeah
0: and he he had he's been treating these these folks with brain disorders that were considered utterly intractable mm-hmm. strictly manage them bipolar disorder schizophrenia i can't remember what all but he had he had a patient who came to him and said hey doc i see you lost a lot of weight can you help me yeah and chris had lost weight by taking by doing uh getting into ketosis metabolic and he said yeah i'll help Mm you and all he was trying to do was help his patient lose weight yeah and after several weeks in ketosis, his schizophrenia disappears.
1: Mm,
0: mm, yeah. Um, I, I agree. It all, it keeps coming. It It's all coming back to the same foundational fundamental
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> problem that I, I guess has the same solution. Yeah. I, I'm I'm, I'm, I get a little wound up here. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, no, I, I agree. I, I think you're right. Um, uh, you know, if we're taking in food items that are nutritionally imbalanced, chemicals, all kinds of chemicals, the brain is a is a is a biochemical machine, like many other organs. It, uh, neurotransmitter synthesis and release can be disrupted by all kinds of metabolic perturbations, leading to neuropsychiatric problems, behavioral issues, uh, hyper, whether uh, uh, behavioral stuff, and 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 a, and a lot of it. Uh, uh is related to imbalances, and where do those imbalances come from they come from what we 're eating uh, we're eating stuff now that is uh, very very different for, from the from the uh, million years two million years that we existed as a species only since the Neolithic period did we start growing our own food and producing large amounts of of, of uh, glucose and and then we modified with technology uh, how to how to maximize the that glucose, I mean, glucose is sweet. We've always wanted glucose. But if you look at the brain light up when you eat glucose, it's like a cocaine for crying out loud. I mean, so a lot of us are addicted to glucose and, and how you know that try not eating for three days and see what happens or try eating a diet that has zero carb, just eat fish, a few vegetables or meat or whatever, no carbs. All of a sudden, man, you're, you 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 don't know you're looking around you say what the hell is going on here you you're know it's, twitchy huh <laughs> yeah you see, until your body realizes that it's not coming and then you enter into this new zone where you're recognized now you're back like we were in the paleolithic period uh but don't forget paleolithic period for us was very dangerous we didn't have antibiotics you get gored by an animal or cut you, you die from an infection um but they weren't dying from cancer <laughs>
0: <laughs> the 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 problems were external to our bodies in other yeah,
1: words, yeah yeah so um and and so the paleolithic approach is just trying to get us back into that uh, situation the the latest paper we had come out of greece um, uh, an advanced lung cancer uh, non small cell lung cancer patient uh, who had standard of care and the, the tumor continued to progress my my colleague, Dr. Athanasis Simon Giulio, put him on a ketogenic Mediterranean diet. Uh, uh, as long as you keep your blood sugar low and your ketones high, you can do that with any variety of different kinds of foods. Well, this guy's out eleven years now, uh, and he was supposed to be dead years ago. He got on and he published all the stuff this guy is eating, his blood sugar, his blood ketones. so it doesn't have to be such a a draconian, um, type of ketogenic diet. And that's another thing they throw in your face all the time. Oh yeah, you can do it with a ketogenic diet, but nobody can do that. Um, because it's too harsh and, you know, all this kind of crap. <laughs> and, and, well, this guy's doing really well in a Mediterranean ketogenic. Pablo Kelly eats the big uh, tomahawk ribeyes, you know? I mean, it's like, and so does, uh, Dr. Cl- uh, 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 Ch- uh I guess he's, he's, he's the, he's the big meat guy, right? The big carnivore. So, um, then you get the vegan guys. So you do the talk for the, oh, meat's the worst thing you can eat. You know, you got to eat vegetables all the time. Uh, but you can still get into ketosis if you want to eat vegetables. Then the other guy comes along, you got to eat ribeyes all day long. You know, you can get into ketosis. with. So I, I don't balance, I don't care what any, anybody eats. As long as they can get into a low glucose ketone index, we call that the cancer management index. As long as the blood sugar gets low, we published a paper on this. And you use um, Keto Mojo or any of these blood, and people can take their own and know what zone they're in. And if you stay in the zone, you're not going to get any of these for the most part. You're going to be, so everybody's running around looking fit, keeping their, keeping their body in the so called glucose ketone zone, the index. So we published this, and people know about it. Now they can take charge. So you asked me, what's the best way to just measure your GKI periodically? And if you're, if you're in the zone, you're going to be healthy, your mitochondria are going to be healthy. If you're out of the zone, get back into the zone. But you don't stay in the zone all the time. Dominic DiAgostino, I don't know if you know Dom Uh DiAgostino. He's a big keto guy, he's the keto guru. Um, He's always in therapeutic ketosis, you know, and he worked out with uh, Wayne Johnson, the the movie actor. You know, they look the same. They got these giant muscles and and they're always uh, looking super fit. And Dom is always in ketosis. So he has a diet and lifestyle that keeps him in a Paleolithic uh, kind of state. Not I'm not saying everybody could do what Dominic does, but Dominic is, uh, is really very, very healthy. He's done a lot of podcasts on ketosis and all this kind of stuff. He publishes papers with me. You know, we have a, we have a, a good group, but, but, um, yeah. So you keep your mitochondria healthy, uh, use the glucose ketone index or the, the cancer index, we call it now, you know, the cancer management index. You can call it the happy index. You can call it a lot of different things, but it is a quantitative marker of your blood glucose to ketones measured with a little finger prick. So you have to, it's like what a diabe- diabetic would do, but this is telling you your path to, to health. So you keep your GKI low, uh, and then you stay in this zone and your mitochondria gets super healthy. And if your mitochondria healthy, you're going to avoid all these chronic diseases. I mean, that's just the way it is. So uh, you, you have a, path, a clear path. You just have to know what to do and how to do it.
2: And and do you um, you know, think that this is as effective as a preventative strategy as it is as a treatment strategy? I think it's both, yeah. I mean,
1: uh, you know, but most people don't do prevention. Right. Um, you know, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to eat this and I'm going to not exercise and I'm just going to do this or that. And I, I'm just going to hope I don't get cancer, but or or diabetes or or all these other things that you can get. But now, now you have the disease. What are you going to do for me? Okay. Well, Verda Health also created by some people I know, um, Jeff Volick uh, and Finney and and some other guys. They're curing type two diabetes using metabolic therapy, no drugs. So uh, you can. Ma- I think you can manage cancer quite effectively. Uh, uh um alzheimer's uh, alzheimer's disease uh you got to get in earlier you you, you got to you you got to know whether you're at risk uh for alzheimer's disease so knowing biomarkers in the blood can sometimes put like this apoe4 if you're uh a, a, a homozygous for the marker apoe4 uh that puts you at risk later in life for uh contracting alzheimer's disease so knowing that early in your your life, you could then possibly and recognize, and how am I going to keep my neurons healthy? And as I said, the neurons stay healthy as long as the mitochondria and the neurons are are themselves uh, working well uh, without reactive oxygen species. And that's the beauty of burning ketones. It actually reduces the amount of, of reactive oxygen species, thereby reducing uh, chronic uh, uh, inflammatory damage. So you're se- essentially delaying Entropy. Uh, entropy is disorder or the second law of thermodynamics. We're all going to die. The, the thing of it is some of us die sooner than others. And the, and what you're going to do is just delay the inevitable. But if you can delay the inevitable at a high quality of life, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, so, uh, so metabolic therapy is a form of delaying entropy, disorder, and maintaining a higher quality of life for a longer period of time. And if you know what to do, you are the, in charge of your own destiny. So you're, you're in charge of your own soul on this planet. If you have the, if you have the, the, the instructions of what you can do. Now, people say, I, I know what I should do, but I just can't do it. Okay, but that's your personal choice. You know. Um, but some people uh, get onto this and they say, listen, this is my new, my new way of living. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you can't have wine. It doesn't mean you can't have beer or whiskey or pizza or jelly donuts. You just have to know that if you do that stuff all the time, it's probably going to increase entropy and have you exit the planet a little earlier than you should. But, um, but other people, if they have the knowledge and know what to do and how to do it, you know, a lot of, I find a lot of people like it. They say, Whoa, now I know what to do. Let me go after it. So, um, so yeah, this kind of knowledge is is power and it gives people a, a, an understanding of what's happening. So their diseases are within their control. And and I think uh, that's powerful. I think that's very important.
0: I, I I love that. That your your diseases are within your control. Yeah. You don't have to go have an expert. I, I could go on and on and on. I I, I don't want to rant. Uh well, Dr. Seafried, I am going to direct people to your website, I think. Tomseafried.com. Well, I, I, don't, I,
1: don't I don't have a website. I oh, have is that, I, is that not yours? No, no. It's, 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 it should be my, just my biology profile on the, on the, on the Boston. College. Well, is it a website? Yeah, Tom
0: com. It's got tons of stuff of your, tons of your stuff your, here. Uh, yeah. Your okay.
1: blog site there. Is it, is it, is it, is it on the university uh, page or is it this, somewhere this else? This
0: particular one is not, I saw oh. the, the BC page as well. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. I, I came to, uh, I just looked at com, really and that led me to various uh, really
1: that's new to uh, me. Oh, well. <laughs> I'll I'll send you a <laughs> link too. <laughs> send me the link will you? I got <laughs> to I got to make sure things are right on it. Cancer is a mitochondrial
0: metabolic disease. Selected yeah. uh, media, we've got uh, oh. your press pulse video which wow. I was that that one blew me. okay. So, okay, uh, I'll
1: look it up, you know, I crazy you know, uh, people. I know a lot of people are doing stuff out there i you know I'm spending all my time in the lab doing uh, uh doing the research, and then I you guys come that. on and invite me, and I can tell you what's going on. uh I appreciate uh, that, yeah, so uh and I think the word gets out quite quite effectively. it kind of spreads well, that's uh, what we're doing here
0: that's where yeah. we're wanting to spread the word
2: yeah, yeah, well, that's great. all right, well, Phil, well, yeah, last Words. Great conversation. Uh, certainly uh, look forward to uh, continuing it in the future as well. And uh really want to thank you for all the great work that you've done uh, over so many years, you know, that that uh, that then people like myself can actually, you know, get out to the clinic and and help people. Um, it really gives us a foundation for being able to help people in a meaningful way.
1: Yeah yeah, well, thank you very much. I, I hope it uh, I hope this continues. And once we get our patient trials, uh, which we're starting, small groups of people, uh, and we publish I publish the case reports with some of my colleagues. And once we have the protocols, we'll start to see far, among, many, many more people uh, improving from from metabolic therapy. And then it's going to be a grass fire and everybody's going to yeah. have to adapt to it because it will become the standard of care. It's just a matter of time. Um, but uh, we're happy to be uh, uh, pushing this forward or starting it, let's put it this way, initiating this whole concept. And, and I think it eventually will. So, and training will have to happen in the medical schools. Uh, so they're aware of this. So the physicians are coming out, at least having some knowledge of what to do and how to do it. And I'm not saying we get rid of all aspects of, 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 not, not for sure, because we need surgeons. Uh, we, we, we definitely need non-invasive imaging of, of tumors. We need all that to let people know, uh, whether metabolic therapy is actually working or not. So there's a lot of diagnostic tools that have to be, uh, continue to be part of the overall process. It's just the way the it's just the way the patients are being treated, uh, that needs to be, uh, modified. So. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, we would like them to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the bottom line. <laughs> You're absolutely right. We we like them, Keith, a high quality of life and and longer survival. Is that I, I, I'd say? Yeah, that's the mission. That's that's our goal. Right? Our well, goal and is. I
0: think anybody who's dealing with cancer would probably say yes. That's what I would. I'm interested in. Yeah. As well. I would yeah. like to postpone the date of my exit from the planet. <laughs> you think so, right? Very good. <laughs> this has been. I, I I just want you to know, I am so pleased, so honored that that I got to sit and listen to you. I wish I could sit and I, I would take that that semester long class. I I'm I'm trained as a musician. I don't have the scientific background, but I I find that I'm just fascinated by chemistry and to hear somebody who gets it. And really groks the whole thing, be able to describe it. Oh, it's so exciting to me. So I'm being I'm being a little bit of a fanboy here, but I don't apologize for it. This no, is... thank
1: you very much. I appreciate that. I really do. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, for Dr. Thomas Seafried and Dr. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Hield. I want to encourage those of you who are who are have been in, uh, intrigued by this conversation to go to Phil's website, ifixhearts.com and take his metabolic health quiz. It's a real fast and easy way to just kind of get a quick measurement of where do I stand, where am I compared to where I could be? Um, and then of course, in the show notes, I'll have contact information for all of Dr. Seyfried's, uh publications and videos. I personally have found them absolutely fascinating. Uh, I didn't get a lot of work done this morning because I was I was plowing through a lot of his videos. All right. I think we're done. Let's call it a wrap. Okay. We'll see y'all next time.
1: Okay. Well, thanks so much. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at
0: ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.